the main theme of Hebrews is Christ and why Christ is uh, superior and, and the uh, better than everything in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, we might say. You know, knowing and having a right identity concerning Christ is pivotal. Remember Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16, when he asked his disciples, he said, who do men say that I am? Remember he asked them that? What's the word on the street? And of course, some came back and said, well, some say you're Elijah or John the Baptist come from the dead. And there was a lot of speculation. But what was the, what was the clincher question he asked them? Yeah. It's one thing to find out what you know, the neighbors say, but who do you say that I am? And so an accurate, truthful understanding of who Jesus is is critical and pivotal as we uh, have um, as we have said in many times and in many different contexts. One of the things that as you study a little bit of church history, uh, especially in the first few centuries, is that right away, in fact you don't even have to get out of the New Testament and you see this in Paul's letter to Galatians and 1 John, you see several incidents that that Satan always, historically, always uh, aims his big guns at Christ. And what I mean by that is always aiming the big guns to diminish uh, the nature and person of who Christ is. And so when you look at some of the early controversies in the church, even think of this controversy that you see uh, brought to fruition in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. Remember the issue? You had these Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, and how are we going to integrate them into this primarily Jewish church? Because the gospel going forth to Gentiles was relatively new, and they're coming to conversion, coming to saving faith. And so the controversy, if you remember in Acts 15, when they convened, convened what they called the Jerusalem Council, was do we make these individuals come under obedience of the law to really be considered Christian? That was the, that was the controversy. Now, had they had done that, had that been the decision that they had to come under the law to keep the dietary laws, the civil laws, all those things, then that certainly would have diminished the ministry or really the person of Christ. That was diametrically opposed to the purpose of why Christ came and why he alone was the sacrifice for sin. So if it was Jesus, and here's always the, the, uh, a ba- here's the bad math of every false religion, Jesus plus something equals salvation. No, it's not Jesus plus something, whether it's works or belonging to this particular church or doing this or doing... No, it's Jesus plus nothing, right? It's Jesus and Jesus alone. So how we get Christ right, how we are accurate concerning who Jesus is, is pivotal. And so, as we are um, in the book of Hebrews, that uh, is certainly uh, very 
much a uh, dominant focus is the focus on the person of Christ. Uh, Let's just read verses 1 through, I have 4 there, but I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3 tonight and make a few comments on some things that uh, from last week that I didn't get to. And as I said, we'll just get as far as we can tonight, may not finish everything, so hang on uh, to that handout. We may end up using it uh, next week. But Hebrews chapter 1, and and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. By the way, does anybody, when it says by His Son, does your version perhaps have the word His in italics? Who, who has that in italics? Uh, do you know what that means if it's in italics? Well, it means it's not in the original. It's not in the original. So, but, but it doesn't mean it's heresy. Don't go tear it out or nothing. It, because most, but it, what it's, so sometimes again it's because in our, in, our, in our translation, but it literally means God has spoken to us by son. That, and the emphasis is really putting that, that exclamation by son. That, uh, and that's just uh, something in the language there. So he has appointed, he has spoken to us. By his Son, whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of on high, and I'll read verse 4 because there's a comma there, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And of course, that next section is going to be uh, going in and showing the superior, superiority of Jesus over angels. But a couple of things that I want to point out from last week, if you have last week's handout in the latter part of uh, the handout, is the supremacy of how God has spoken to us in this finality through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's just, the writer of Hebrews is just making this emphasis that even though God spoke in various ways, you know, through the prophets, and there were seasons, times He used dreams and visions and, and uh, a burning bush and, uh, you know, all different ways that He spoke under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, but in these last days, and the last days is the last days are the last days that began with the ascension of Christ forward. So everybody in the first century after the resurrection of Christ were in the last days on forward. We're in the last days. We're a little closer to the last of the last days than the first century, but we don't know, you know, and it's, we're not going to speculate. But that, that term is just a term that speaks of kind of the final period of time before the second coming of Christ, which uh, we always get in trouble when we want to try to figure the dates and time of all that. And we'll be like those in church history that 
uh, have written books and come to find out that those dates and things are all wrong. So it's better to not be doing that. But what the writer of Hebrews wants to emphasize is that this finality of Jesus's, of God's uh, messenger, he had a lot of messengers of the past, but now he has sent his Messiah. This is the messenger. In fact, this isn't just a messenger. Jesus is the message, okay? And that is different than the way that God spoke in the past. Uh, and in your outline last week, I have a little part on the back part there about how the prophets, when they spoke, they only spoke in pieces and glimpses. They didn't have the totality of God's redemptive revelation. But Christ, in his message and word, was complete. He had the full revelation of God. Uh, the prophets and all those that, and I'll just use the term prophets to really kind of cover everybody that were the spokesmen, even though they may not have been technically prophets, but they were all sinners, right? They were all sinners. Christ, the final prophet, was sinless. Uh, the prophets of the Old Covenant were preparatory, preparing by their message in some way or fashion, but Jesus is the finality of the message. The prophets were, were mere mortal men, but Jesus is God's Son. So the point that, uh, that I wanted to emphasize in the little box there from last week's outline is the importance that when we look at Scripture, that we make sure that we have Jesus as our key of interpretation. That Jesus Christ, that we are to interpret the Bible Christologically, okay? That Jesus is the key to understanding the Scripture. And of course, I, many times I point out, you know, in Luke 24, when Jesus revealed himself to those, um, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and in beginning at the law and the prophets showed them all those things concerning himself. So Jesus is the key, obviously, to the Old Testament and uh, certainly the New. Uh, we shouldn't look for any new revelation from God after the completion of the New Testament. Jesus is the final revelator. He's the final word, okay? So there's not more. There's more to learn and understand, but God, uh, God is not re giving us new or what sometimes is called progressive revelation. Uh, the Mormons teach progressive revelation, that there is uh, remaining a living prophet and that that prophet can uh, give uh, continuous revelatory messages that are on par with other scriptures. Uh, we do not uh, certainly uh, believe that. Uh, and if we are not using the Bible to come to know Jesus in a deeper and more personal way, then uh, we are certainly not using the intent of Scripture. Remember John said in his, uh, the latter part of his uh, letter there, he said, these things are written, the Apostle John wrote in the Gospel of John towards the latter part of his book, uh, gave the purpose, he said, these things are written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. So the Bible is intended to reveal Jesus. Now, remember, uh, uh, and I have that scripture from Ephesians 1.9, this 
goes to tonight's outline, and I included it even though it's Ephesians. But I just want you to see that everything that God has purposed, God the Father's purpose and plan is culminated in Jesus Christ. And that scripture from Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 at the top of your outline tonight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So if you want to go to what scripture says that before the foundations of the world, uh, that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the world in God's sovereign providence. If you want to go uh, to Genesis 3.15, there in the garden where the, the seed from the woman that was prophesied that would crush the serpent's head and that the purpose of redemption has been unfolding from Genesis all the way and culminating in the Gospels and eventually will culminate in the return of Christ and the reordering of all things under uh, his feet, his enemies under his feet, and the kingdom of God that, uh, that he will culminate and establish in Revelation that speaks of. Uh, so tonight, I want us to look a little further at verse 2 and 3 a little bit, and there's, there's quite a bit here. It may seem too short, but there's really a lot uh, there's a lot here, and uh, it is uh, just pregnant with uh, wonderful truth. In your outline, I have just in that box the three primary offices, if you will, um, in the Old Testament where it was um, prophet, priest, and king. Those were the three primary offices. So when it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, about how in many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, you really could also include as part of that prophetic voice the office or the person of the, the prophets, the priests, and the king. Okay, So we know multiple prophets, uh, Moses and Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, priests, you know, Aaron certainly is the the lead priest there historically, and many priests that would follow, and they certainly had a God-ordained ministry in their, in their administration of the sacrificial system in the temple. That was a place where uh, God met his people in, uh, in, a, in a temporary, symbolic form. And then king, you remember the nation of Israel, uh, cried out uh, for a king. They wanted to be like all the other nations, Right? And they didn't want, that. really they, were, they did have a king. Who was their king? But they were rejecting. Who was their king when? It was the Lord. It was a theocratic kingdom. They were rejecting him. Remember he told Samuel, uh, and I'll paraphrase, Samuel, quit crying. They're not, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me, the Lord says. And so guess what? Sometimes the worst thing to get is what you ask for. And who did they get? I mean, Saul was a good-looking, strong guy, and that's who they got. Now, what's interesting is, is God allowed them to have Saul, right? God, can, I mean, God, in essence, ordained Paul. In fact, David, remember when David was going to, had an opportunity to strike and uh, kill Saul when he was in the cave, uh, taking care of uh, nature's business, uh, 
And David had the opportunity to, to kind of ambush him uh, or, and, they, and his, and his uh, fellow uh, soldiers uh, said, hey, this is the... And actually, you know, people, people will spiritualize things to make you think it's a godly decision because remember those guys told David, God has put him in your hand to kill him. You remember the story about... And David says, I will not touch God's anointed. He understood that even though Saul was a rotten, evil guy who would have, if, if the tables were turned, do you think Saul would have given up an opportunity to kill David? Absolutely not. But David recognized that God is the one that establishes these, these authorities. And so, but kingship and uh, Saul and then David and Solomon and then a mixed bag of good kings and bad kings thereafter. All the point being is, as much as these individuals were prototypes of the coming fulfillment of the one that would embody the prophet, the priest, the king, they were all mortals. They were all sinners. The, the priests, in fact, Hebrews will, will get into that. He says, you're talking about comparing Jesus as our high priest, said he's different than the earthly high priest because he doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. The earthly priests had to offer a sacrifice for their sin. They were sinner. So this prophet, priest, and king, we're going to see uh, this breakdown in these verses there. And in your outline, you'll see kind of a, a main heading in the middle where I've kind of designated and uh, how these three offices are revealed in these seven phrases that the writer of Hebrews uses that demonstrates the supremacy of Christ. Because one of the things that the writer of Hebrews, and this is where it's a good reminder to remind ourselves of the context of what Hebrews, uh, of who Hebrews was written to, primarily the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians, Jewish believers, okay, uh, who were probably f really uh, second generation believers. So if the book of Hebrews was written around 60, 65, Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected around the year 33. You know, you had a whole generation that were born uh, in the church or as believers. So primarily many of these are second generation Christians. There were some first generation. But here's the, here's the rub. Here's what's going on is because these were Jews who had professed faith in Christ that were uh, uh, making claim to be followers of Jesus, they were being tempted because of persecution, because of hardship, because of uh, uh, them renouncing Judaism by following this Jesus that was so disdained and hated and certainly was crucified, and they perhaps were suffering economic hardship, Perhaps they were facing rejection by their families, on and on and on. And, and that generation uh, believed that Jesus was going to return back in that first generation. Well, now you've got a second generation. Jesus hasn't come back, right? And yet they still see the temple. They still see the whole apparatus of the Jewish uh, system, the whole religious system, the, the nation, eventually in the year 70, what would happen in Jerusalem? What would happen in the year 70? 
Jerusalem, the Romans would come in and essentially level the place, all right? No temple, uh, no, no Judaistic uh, uh, system to worship God, and they were... Um, the nation or the, it, Jerusalem was was destroyed. That hadn't happened yet, but here they are and all this, and they're basically saying, "Is it worth it? Is all this hardship? Is all this persecution? Is all this rejection? Is it really worth it? You know, how, why don't we just kind of go back to the way it was before? How about we just kind of go back? We're not going to like fully reject Jesus, but we'll just go back and work under the old." covenant system as the way that we relate to God. And as we'll see in the book of Hebrews, is the writer of Hebrews very bluntly says, God's not in the old system. He's not in the old covenant because Jesus is superior and he is the final revelation of God. He is the pinnacle of God's word and God's will and what God is doing is in Jesus. And if you're not in Jesus now and you abandon what God is doing and has and is doing in Jesus and you go and freelance back into the old system, there's no salvation. There's no hope. So here we come to Hebrews chapter 1, and I want us to look at verse 2 and notice with me these seven things that are uh, in your outline tonight, and we'll just kind of go through these and, uh, and stop wherever we want if we don't make it through. You'll see the first heading at the top under the prophet, priest, and king is these demonstrate these uh, next uh, uh, two uh, show that Jesus is revealed as the ultimate ruler, Jesus is king. Number one, Jesus is supreme as the heir of all things. That title, an heir, when somebody is an heir, it is, it is, a, it is, a, it is intended here as a title of honor. Okay, So that Jesus is the heir of God's creation. Uh, the Father's creation. I've got a quote there from a, a, a commentary that I thought was helpful and I included in there. Uh, Leon Morris, who uh, is a, uh, in heaven now, but uh, writes this little note there that I put in your outline. When he says that he is the heir of all things, it is a title of dignity and shows that Christ has the supreme place in all the mighty universe, that his exaltation to the highest place in heaven after his work on earth was done did not mark some new dignity, not like he had earned it and it was a reward, but it was his re-entry into his right place. And I think I, think I included there that scripture from Philippians chapter 2. You remember how... Uh, it speaks about being a servant and how Jesus Christ, uh, to paraphrase, left all the, uh, the, the, the heavenly kingship, uh, his, his godness, if you will. It didn't mean he wasn't God here on earth, but he put those aside, if you will, in order to be a servant. You can read that later in Philippians chapter 2. So the only thing I want you to keep in mind there is that the writer is just using all these superlative titles to, again, reiterate 
that you can't get better than Christ. Remember, they're wanting to go back. They're wanting to kind of, you know, play golden oldies and, and go back into the old system. But there's, no, there's nothing going on there. A, you know, Jesus is where the hits are, if I could uh, destroy that, that metaphor a little bit. Um, air speaks of, MacArthur says in his study Bible, said air is everything that exists uh, that uh, everything that exists will come under the control of the Son of God and Messiah. Sometimes you've heard me refer to this, even recently in 1 Thessalonians. When we talk about the kingdom rule and reign of Jesus, uh, yes, it does speak in Revelation, it does speak of a future coming of Christ, it does speak of a future culmination, right? That uh, the Bible teaches a literal return of Jesus, a literal bodily rule of Jesus. The Bible, I believe, teaches that. But that does not mean that Jesus is not presently ruling and reigning right now. He's, he's not diminished one bit. There is a present and there will be a culmination. Sometimes we'll say it this way. There is an already, but not yet. Already, the kingdom rule of Jesus is present. But it's not yet in the sense that it has culminated in the, in the coming and the physicality of Jesus' rule uh, here on earth. So Jesus is the heir over all things. And you see the culmination of this pictured in, of course, Revelation 20, 21 with the Lamb on the throne. Secondly, the second under this uh, Jesus as king, the ultimate ruler, you see that Jesus is supreme as the creator of all things. Now, Genesis tells us who created all things. God created all things, right? In the beginning, God. And God spoke, and things came into, spoke light, spoke this, spoke that. Everything came into existence by the word of his power, Hebrews would later say. So just a simple connection there. If he's the creator of all things, the implication is, is that this Jesus, heir of all things, heir of the Father's uh, creation, now he's referred to in verse, uh, also in verse 2, uh, but in the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. That's the first one we looked at. Secondly, through whom also he created the world. So if God is the creator, the implication clearly is, is that the Son is God. It's speaking of his deity. It's speaking of his identity as the one who made the world. Look in your Bibles. It's not on there. But look over in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you just hang a left, go through the Thessalonians, you'll hit Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. This is a great chapter as we... Study this 
was it two years ago? We finished it up online. I don't remember now. But, um, but in chapter 1, Paul is talking about the superiority and the supremacy of Jesus and his glory. And let's pick it up in verse... Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 15. Speaking of Christ, Colossians 1 verse 15, He is the image, Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now let me just stop there. It's interesting that uh, one of the controversies of the early church, and it certainly has uh, been something that uh, false understanding of Jesus' identity has been uh, perpetuated uh, down the road. But one of the early controversies was ar- around the what was called the Arian, A-R-I-A-N, heresy, which in essence uh, was that Jesus was a created being, that he was not God of very God. That was an early uh, heresy, false teaching in the uh, for really the second century uh, now, we have modern adherents to that false teaching, and they're called, among many things, there's a lot of groups that might believe, but the most prominent one are Jehovah's Witnesses that do not believe that Jesus is God, a very God, a, uh, when they talk about a son of God, and they'll use uh, this verse that I just read, verse 15, they'll point out that verse, and they'll latch on to that term, firstborn. And I've talked about this in other uh, situations where it's used, is that firstborn is not a chronological term. It is a term that has to do with honor. It has to do with authority. It has to do with the inheritance, if you will. So firstborn, unlike the way the Jehovah's Witnesses would say, Aha! See? It says right there, he's the firstborn, the firstborn created one. He's not God, a very God. But if they would read the next verse, 16, what does it say? For by him, all things were what? Created. So how could he create himself? Are you with me? You see what I'm saying? So if maybe you have a Jehovah's Witness uh, friend or somebody that uh, struck, you know, I, that certainly is, well, how does that work? If, he's, if he is, if, he, if it's speaking about him being the first created, that term, which that isn't what that means, then verse 16 says, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So when it's going back to Hebrews, when it's uh, the, the title that how he is that through whom, uh, the latter part of verse 2 of Hebrews 1, through whom also he created the world, uh, it is speaking that Jesus Christ is God. Okay, And that's very important because... What is the writer doing? He's showing the supremacy of who Jesus is, and you can't get any higher than God. Right? Paul would say in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. 
you've heard me point out uh, this uh, before, and I'll just mention it again. Um, talk about Jehovah's Witnesses and those who would want to deny that Jesus uh, claimed to be God. You know, there are so-called Christian theologians that uh, would teach and write a lot of stuff that Jesus never claimed to be God, which is kind of interesting because the religious rulers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, clearly, they apparently knew more than some of these progressive liberal theologians that say that Jesus never claimed to be God because when he said things like, before Abraham was, I am, what was their reaction? They wanted to kill him. They understood the blasphemy that he was making, that he was speaking, right? So they clearly understood his claims. Um, but you remember when after the resurrection that uh, who, 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 who missed church? I used to live church and a, a pastor would say, well, that's why you shouldn't miss church on Sunday night because look what happened to Thomas. He, he missed Jesus, you know? And, uh, uh, just kidding. That was just funny there, he'd say, to make people feel guilty for not coming out on Sunday night. But Thomas wasn't there. And when the disciples said that they had seen Jesus, Thomas, in essence, said what? He says, I'm from Missouri, right? So I don't buy that. I'm not buying that, right? Uh, he says, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it and I touch it, you know, with my hand. You know, in other words, he's not buying And Jesus, in his mercy and compassion, allowed Thomas uh, to do that. Now, here's my point. What was when Thomas and Jesus invited him to touch his hands and touch his side and feel the physicality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, what was Thomas's response? But what did he say? And so I asked you Jehovah's Witness, you've heard me say this before. I said how do you, what do you do with that? Because he is acknowledging Jesus as God. So Jesus must be a blasphemer because he didn't rebuke Thomas for calling him Jehovah. And this is their answer. Well, he wasn't saying Jesus was Jehovah, Jesus was God. He was just saying it like, oh my God, it's you. No, that's, that was what they, I was like, okay. Get off my porch. <laughs> no, I didn't. no, I didn't say that. But, that. but my point is, is that clearly Thomas worshipped and is acknowledging Jesus as God, as Yahweh. And Jesus, here's the point, Jesus received that worship. All right. So the writer of Hebrews here speaks about Jesus as supreme as the creator of of all things, all right? All right, you'll notice in your outline a second heading. That was about Jesus as king, but you'll see the next few of these seven speak of Jesus as the ultimate revealer of God. He is the prophet of God. And so in verse 3, the first part of verse 3, it says that uh, the title here in the outline is Jesus is supreme as the radiance of the Father's Glory, the radiance of the Father's glory that 
um, the radiance. It's it's like a picture of the rays from a sun from the sun displaying its brilliance. Well, Jesus not only reflects the Father's glory, but he's much more than that. He's not a mere reflection of glory. He in himself possesses glory on his own that beams, if you will, all right, has a brilliance. So he's not merely just reflecting. He himself inherently has glory, okay? And we'll see that uh, uh, in the fourth one in just a minute. But let's, let's look at this one here. Uh, I think I have, uh, do I have Revelation 21 printed out there? Here's, here's a good scripture, good example. And John uh, said, I, and I saw no temple, and that goes along with the glory, that the radiance of Jesus' glory is more than just reflective. It's that, but he has his own glory. And John, in Revelation 21, verse 22 and 23, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city, verse 23, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Look at this. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is who? You see that? So Jesus certainly reflects the Father's glory, but he himself is full of the glory of the Father. Let's look in your Bibles, uh, do a little uh, looking at some scriptures in your Bible. Let's just, uh, uh, we'll, stick, we'll stick with John. So go to John 1, and we'll look at a few in the Gospel of John. Keep something there in Hebrews. And maybe uh, some of you can read some of these for me. Let me uh, make sure I got the right ones here. Someone read uh, for me uh, John 1.18. John 1.18. Someone read that out loud for me. Okay. So, if going... And I'm really, I'm kind of building around this, the theme of how Jesus is the ultimate revealer of God. Jesus, it says that the only way that the Father has been made known, or more fully known, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Christ, has made Him known. And that speaks into that Jesus as the final, ultimate revealer of God the Father. Go to John 10. I should have read these earlier, but... um, uh, John 10, verse 38. Someone read, let me just make sure that's the right verse. I don't have Judas hanging himself or some verse here that I wrote down wrong. Uh, okay. Yeah, someone read John 10, 38. Father is in me, and I am in him. 
So again, just reiterating another example that Jesus is the ultimate revealer of the Father. The Father's in me, I am in him. Uh, and that uh, you believe and to know and understand the Father through me. All right? Go over to John 17. And uh, this is probably the last one we look at in this. And we'll go back to Hebrews 1. John 17. And uh, let's pick it up and... Uh, Oh, let's pick it up and read uh, 24 through 26. John 17, could read almost that entire chapter, but John 17, 24 and through 26. 24, 25, and 26. And again, just reestablishing that Jesus is the ultimate revealer of God the Father. All right, someone read that. So Jesus, he is the ultimate one who knows the Father and that can adequately, purely, completely. As wonderful as Moses was, as wonderful as Ezekiel and Jeremiah, etc., etc., etc. I mean, you just go down the list, all the names. Take Hebrews 11, all those great names of faith. They were all inadequate. You know, I mean, I, I, I think I gave this illustration last time. It, it's as though they all had a little piece, some maybe more than one piece, of like this puzzle. And it was an accurate piece of what they had, but only Jesus could complete the picture. He was the completion, all right? He was the box, you know? I mean, he revealed what that was. They all had fragments and pieces but they didn't have the totality. Jesus was the totality. And so he was the totality, going back to number three, as the revealer of the radiance of the Father's glory. He and he alone uh, could be the one, uh, this radiance, this reflection, this inherent glory. Um, and I won't look at these, but I'll just mention them for uh, just reference sake. Remember in Moses, speaking about the glory of the Lord, this idea of this this, uh, this radiance that's spoken of here in Hebrews 1, this radiance of the glory that Jesus has, this radiance of this glory. You see, remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the Bible says that his face was shining with, a, with some type of glow at the exposure of the glory of God. Uh, Hebrews 34 with that. Uh, the tabernacle, the Shekinah, glory of the Lord uh, would fill it and people would know that Yahweh was there because of the brightness of this glory that they would see. Jesus himself is this glory. What about at the transfiguration? 
wonderful, wonderful, um, and there, it's mentioned in three of the Gospels, Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. And uh, you remember Jesus took uh, uh, Peter, James, and John with him, and, uh, and th- he was transfigured, meaning they, they sought a, um, they saw for the first time, they saw this Jesus whom they've been with, they saw him in his, if you will, his Godness glory. I mean, I don't know how to describe it any other way. You remember Peter, he was really excited because, because along with this glory that they were witnessing, uh, there was Moses and Elijah, and the Bible says that Jesus was conversing with them. Their identities, uh, even though they were dead, somehow their identities were, were still known, even though they were dead. They were identified. Uh, I don't know how. I don't know, think they had name tags, but somehow they, it was known they were Moses and Elijah, and they were talking amongst with Jesus. And of course, Moses being the lawgiver, and Elijah sometimes is referred to as the chief of the prophets. So in essence, for our sake, in in those two individuals, it is as if you have the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, authenticating and verifying Jesus. You with me? Now Peter got all excited because he said, let's start three churches. Now, I know you didn't say that, but, but he said, let's build, a, you know, to, yeah, let's, let's build one to Moses, and let's build one to Elijah, and we'll build one to Jesus. In fact, we'll put Jesus right in the middle. We'll give him, and, and, I, and I don't remember which of the Gospels, but, I, but one of them says that as he was still speaking, I love that, the Lord is like, I can't listen to this guy anymore, and the Lord spoke. And said, this is my son, hear him. And that's exactly what Hebrews 1 verse 1 is saying. Hear him. Moses is great. Elijah is great. But they're not my son. And going back to the context of these people, these Hebrews, who were willing to trade, think with me, They were going to swap out Jesus and go back to Elijah and Moses. Now, if Moses and Elijah, if we could hear that conversation, they'd be like, are y'all crazy? We wouldn't even do that. (laughs) I mean, you've got Jesus, and you want us? Figuratively speaking. Um, I love that story. Paul, on the road to Damascus, uh, the light was so strong that Acts 9, it says that he was blinded. That's where the title of the song, Steve, Blinded by the Light, by Man for Man came. No, I don't, it didn't come from that. Does anybody even know that song? Remember that? Blinded by the... I digress. What about in Revelation, John, in chapter 1, when, this, when Jesus, uh, when he sees Jesus in this vision, his glory in Revelation 1, 12 through 18, is so stunning that John, the apostle, falls over like a dead man at this glory. That's 
that's kind of what we're hammering on, that, that point number three, that he's the radiance of the Father's glory, but don't miss that he himself has inherent as God, a very God, glory, the glory, that Shekinah glory of God. I remember uh, listening to, I think it was MacArthur, and he was talking about something, John MacArthur, and he was, I don't even know what, 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 what he preaching on, but I just remember he's talking about a, a story where he had heard that, um, and you know, there's lots of these stories out there, but uh, about this guy that saw Jesus in the mirror while he was shaving. <laughs> and MacArthur, who can kind of be a little sarcastic, said, my question was, did you keep shaving? In other words, that if you see the glory of Jesus... You're not, it's this flippant, casual, you're not going to keep shaving. You hear what I'm saying? And, 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 and it's just sometimes we minimize this, the glory that is inherent in Jesus. Let's look at one more, number four. Keep your outlines and we'll finish up next week. Number four, and this, it's interesting that this is coupled, that these two really go together. So on the one hand, He's the radiance of the Father's glory, okay? He's the radiance, not just reflection, but he's the radiance, the fullness of the Father's glory. But it also says in the fourth part here, under, uh, in verse 3, that he is the, the ESV says, he is, he is the exact imprint of his nature. Does somebody have something a little different than the word imprint? Okay, representation. Is that New American Standard? Okay. The Greek word imprint is the word that we get the word character. And I'm not talking about a, that Pastor Tim, he's a character. I'm not talking about that. <laughs> or somebody with Bad character, good character. I'm talking about a character like a font, a image, okay, an imprint, a symbol, a um, a logo, if you will. You with you know some of you that actually. Did anybody take typing in high school? Anybody take typing class? Anybody even know what? A, remember what a typewriter is? You know, remember a typewriter. Um, I I have my mother's electric typewriter. I used it in. It was, I had to use it in college. There was no internet or nothing. Um, but uh, I still keep it for sentimental reasons. But, but the striking of that metal arm onto the paper makes an imprint of a character. Okay? Jesus is the imprint. He's the exact imprint. He is the exact character imprint, the stamp, if that... Helps you better understand. Like a, also, the picture is, is a stamp like on a coin that has an image of the emperor back in the day or whatever. Or like our coins, uh, you know, that has a, has a character of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. You know, whatever. It has that. So, huh? Uh, yeah, Caesar. Sure. So, so, so that's, that's what he's trying to convey there, that he is that exact imprint that... And uh, again, if we could, we've got just a few minutes. We'll, we're going to stop at this point here. Um, 
But go back over to Colossians. And uh, you'll see the, uh, a, little, a little commentary of what is being expressed here about how Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, the exact representation of the Father's nature. Colossians 1, um, I'll just read it for time. Uh, actually, let's read verse 18. And He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn. There's that title again. From the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent or that he might have first place. Verse 19 is where I want you to look at. For in him, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Does anybody, uh, if anybody look at that verse, does anybody have all the fullness of the Godhead? Does your version say Godhead or does it say, I might be thinking of another verse. Look over to chapter 2 verse 9 of Colossians. It, it reiterates this point. Chapter 2, verse 9, Colossians. For in Him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity. I think that's where one version says the fullness of the Godhead. ESV says the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So, those two, coupled with, again, the, the, that He is the exact. He's not... Kind of close. It says he's the exact. Remember what, what did he, what was Philip's big question to Jesus? Philip said, if you just do this, I promise this will be my birthday, this will be Christmas, this will be Hanukkah, this will be, they didn't have bar mitzvahs till later, but anyway, this will be, Jesus, I just want to know this one, just do me this one solid, which was what? He said, just, and what did, and we were talking about this last night, you know, in our Bible study. It's like, and you, you know, you don't want to read too much in it, but it gives me hope as a pastor and those of you who teach, where somebody will ask you a question that you've been teaching on, and you'd be like, what was Jesus' response? Have I been with you so long that you still don't get it? You see, what does he say? You've seen me. You've seen. Now, don't make mistake. The mistake, and this gets a little off track in the understanding the Trinity. Uh, Jesus is not the Father, and the Father is not Jesus. The Holy Spirit isn't. And there's a, they're they're separate. The one, but they're separate personalities, beings. One in nature, separate in personality. So he's not saying I'm really the Father, and the Father is me, and we're all. No, that's a misunderstanding of the tri tri trinity of, of the Godhead. And I, again, that's getting off into that. But he says, you've seen me. Now again, if, if that wasn't true, Jesus was committing the height of heresy and blasphemy by saying such a thing. But let's wrap it up here, the last part. That he's the exact imprint of his nature. And uh, that he, his very nature, as we read in the Colossians verses. Those are good verses to put in your margin uh, next to that. Colossians 1.19 and 2.9. Um, that he 
He alone, because He's God, revealed God. And, uh, and uh, so with that, I'll stop there.